0: Well, uh, my name's uh, Anne Phillips, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this um, second in a series of four lectures, which is part of the Ralph Miliband uh, program of events on the theme of religion, secularism, and modernity. Um, The speakers that we've invited to this series represent uh, quite different uh, perspectives on this issue, uh, but all of them are engaged in some way on rethinking the meaning and nature of secularism, so taking on the challenge uh, of understanding what is the relationship between secularism, modernity, and religion uh, in a world where religion has not, as some of us expected, steadily become a less central part in people's lives and where the so-called secularization thesis uh, no longer seems so compelling. Uh, Now, our speaker tonight is... uh, Tariq Madhoud, who's one of the uh, most influential voices in Britain today uh, on the topic of multiculturalism and on secularism. Uh, He's Professor of Sociology, Politics, and Public Policy at the University of Bristol, uh, where he's also the founding director of the university's research centre for the study of ethnicity and citizenship. Uh, He's the founding co-editor of the uh, journal Ethnicities, Um, and he's the author and editor of more books than I care to mention, Um, though I should perhaps mention his most recent one, uh, Multiculturalism, a Civic Idea. Um, He's been one of the leading figures in the study of uh, ethnicity, citizenship, multiculturalism. Uh, He contributed very significantly to what's been one of the major shifts uh, in the study of race and ethnicity, Uh, which is the the move from thinking primarily in terms of a racism uh, based on the color of people's skins uh, to one that is also organized around notions, uh, often very stereotypical notions uh, of culture. Uh, And he's written very extensively, as I say, on multiculturalism, and his topic today is multiculturalism and secularism. Uh, so it, will you join me in welcoming uh, Professor Tariq Madhoud to this uh, lecture? <laughs> and uh, perhaps before, before Tariq starts, can I just add that the, um, uh, the event today will be, reco- will be recorded um, and it will be available online uh, for bl- public consumption as a podcast, which you can download from the LSE website.
1: <coughs> Thank you very much, Anne. Um, I'm honored and delighted to be uh, invited to contribute to the Ralph Miliband Lecture Series on, on Secularism and um, very pleased to have the opportunity to, to address you tonight on some thoughts on multiculturalism and secularism. Um, because I, I've come to the topic of, of secularism really as a kind of uh, extension. Uh, from working out certain uh, points of view, some some kind of tensions within multiculturalism. And then as I worked out those, you know, just for myself and so on, I thought, well, this actually has pretty major implications for what we loosely called secularism. And so I'd like to to share that, uh, some of that with you. And most of what I say comes from uh, a chapter in in, in the book that... um, Anne just mentioned on on multiculturalism. That's the research center that Anne mentioned. That's the title. And so I'd like to begin by saying something very briefly about what I understand to be like, you know, just like a kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of the core normative ideas of multiculturalism and then go on to explore some of those and show that they, in fact, connect with, positively and negatively, connect with issues to do with secularism. I think that um, however one comes to define multiculturalism, one would clearly put the concept of equality in one form or another at at the center of that definition. And moreover, it would be a concept of equality that would be, in some sense, an extended or thick, or as I have on, on the uh, slide here, uh, a double concept of equality, because multiculturalism works with a concept of equality that's um, fairly elaborate, more so than other people, more so than, for instance, people who might uh, call themselves uh, liberals, academic liberals anyway. And different multiculturalist theorists who've uh, influenced me have um, come to this Extended concept of equality in, in different ways. Um, and I put here one particular way, which owes um, to uh, Iris Marion Young, um, the American political philosopher who, who, who passed away um, about a, a year or so ago. Um, and she. distinguishes between two concepts of equality, as on the slide, the first being where there's a a right to assimilate to the majority or dominant culture in the public sphere, meaning um, job opportunities, um, rights and entitlements of all kind, um, standing for political office, and so on, with toleration of difference in the private sphere, in in some other sphere which isn't necessarily to do with uh, public interaction, with um, rewards and office and uh, rights and competition. And we might say, well, that sounds like a a, a reasonable idea. It's a kind of idea, for instance, that um, inspired the civil rights movement in the the United States, in the... um, Uh, 1950s and onwards and uh, various other kinds of equality movements, perhaps like uh, anti-apartheid. But Iris Young argues, and I think rightly, that actually this isn't a satisfactory concept of equality. She argued that the suggestion of assimilation, even if it's only a partial assimilation, that is to say assimilation in the form of Uh, public participation, public uh, relationships and identity that the, the requirement to assimilate is actually a denial of equality because it immediately assumes that there's one body of citizens the majority or white people or whoever they might be a body of citizens who are the norm and another body of citizen who need to do something to get to be more like the norm, to get to be more like the normal people, including, of course, enjoy extra rights that they may not have enjoyed in the past, that they may have been excluded from, and so on. But, but nevertheless, the, this concept of equality doesn't see the uh, rectification of uh, a subordinate status, the rectification of inferior rights as extending to the uh, subordinate groups the freedoms and the status that the normal citizens already enjoy but rather just saying to the subordinate well can you be more like us or can you be more like this group, group of people and so this is a fundamental inequality built into this idea that one group is the norm and the other group has to do the assimilating. And instead Irish Young argued moving to the second bullet point argued that actually a fuller and more adequate concept of equality in this context would be one which includes the identities of all citizens, including those who've been previously marginalized, those who have had uh, inferior rights um, or have had um, various kinds of stereotypes by which they have been judged in public life, possibly in private, private interactions as well, but that they've had to negotiate the obstacles of stereotypes, even where, as it were, they pass where they're told, oh, you're not at all like what we expected, or you're not like the rest of your exes, even where they pass. Nevertheless, they have to go through this um, uh, standard, this double standard of being judged uh, before they're granted equality. Instead, therefore, Iris Young argued that the fuller concept of equality is the right to have one's difference, given people have various kinds of identities which aren't just being a citizen in the abstract, but which are, you know, like being English-language speakers, French-language speakers, being men, women, black, white, and so on, identities which are, are very socially visible and have important uh, social consequences uh, inherited and ongoing. Given that's the case then the right to have one's difference recognized and supported in both the public and the private sphere is the proper concept of equality. Iris Young herself didn't necessarily use the phrase multicultural equality, but that's what I would call it. That's what I think that um, she is, is, is getting at. And an important point here is not that, that the second concept, as, as on the slide is superior to the first. I wouldn't put it that way at all because the first concept is actually one that we still need even when we have the second. We, we still need to, to uh, treat people, for instance, in non-discriminatory ways in, in many contexts. So that's, that's what basically the first concept uh, tries to do. We need to do that. And moreover, in many ways, the second concept, because it's a kind of a rectification of what goes wrong in the first concept, is an extension of it. It's not a a replacement or a substitution. So what I would say is critical to multiculturalism is, yes, the second concept, but the second concept taken together with the first. So if you like, multicultural equality is where both these concepts of equality are are in play, or are being aspired to, that people uh, regard that as a, uh, something um, to aim at. Well, m- taking, taking a step towards secularism, which I won't get to in one go, but uh, obviously to, to move in that direction is to start thinking about religious groups, groups uh, that are different in some sense in relation to a religious identity, a religious membership, and so on. So one might say, well, if what I've just said to you about multicultural equality is broadly right, or at least that's what the starting point of a view of multiculturalism is, what what implications does it have for religious equality? And my suggestion is that we may think of religious equality, and here I'm actually really, I think, extending the notions of equality that we already have in relation to uh, various forms of, as it were, difference equality, like gender equality, racial equality, ethnic equality, and so on. I'm kind of extending it to religious groups, and not necessarily in in a very um, complicated way, in a, possibly in a relatively simplistic way, but certainly as a kind of fairly straightforward extension. And my suggestion is that we might think of religious equality in, um, as it were, as unfolding through three uh, stages or aspects. Stages is not necessarily appropriate, but what I'm thinking of is that the concept thickens out from, as it were, one bullet point to the next, to the the third. And so potentially, as you'll come to to appreciate as I go on, potentially each next bullet point um, contains something that someone who thinks of themselves as committed to secularism might want to object to. May not want to object to, but might might want, want to object to. Well, the very basic... Uh, understanding of religious equality like that of racial or ethnic equality would have to be non-discrimination, you know, non-discrimination in workplaces, in uh, competing for political office and other kinds of uh, uh, social prestigious rewards and so on. I think every, everybody would, un- would understand that and I think sign up to it, at least in, in theory. Then the next as it were, layer is what I've got here, um, even-handedness with native religions. Now, native religion is not a very felicitous phrase, and perhaps it would be better just to say even-handedness between religions. That might be just better. But what I I suppose I was trying to capture by including uh, the term native there, and other terms might be more appropriate, is that we already have, some kind of a status quo. We already have some kind of place for religious groups in our society, you know, Britain, but also other places, France, Netherlands, the United States, and so on, whichever place we're talking about. There will already be some kind of uh, institutionalized way of accommodating or limiting, depending on what your perspective is, accommodating or limiting the uh, role of organized religion and its representatives or of religious identity. Um, that's what I was really getting at. And of course, in Britain, we clearly do have that and we have a, you know, a Church of England, a Church of Scotland, various constitutional um, uh, uh, statutes or rules, conventions in relation to those to those churches, we have um, quite a large um, sector, especially in in England, uh, educational sector, primary and secondary school sector, which is funded out of the public purse, but uh, run by church or church-like organisations, and so on. So, by even-handedness here, I meant well because the context is talking about multicultural equality and multicultural integration, you know, the presence of new groups or previously marginalized groups, how to treat them even-handedly in relation to that kind of um, institutional arrangements or resource provision, resource provision like the ones to do with, with schooling or possibly chaplains in hospitals and in prisons. and you know, One can think of a number of different... Uh, pol- pol- policy areas probably the two most important or at least high profile ones are the one that I've just mentioned in relation to schooling where till 1997 the uh, claims made by non-Christian non-Jewish schools um, were not accepted You know, specific applications from Schools were not accepted for uh, inclusion into the public sector. But in, in 1997, in fact, with the change of government in 1997, a Muslim school, Islamia primary school, was accepted. And since then, um, I think about seven other Muslim school applications have been accepted for inclusion into the state sector and um, two Sikh schools and about a dozen or more uh, Jewish schools, not to, mention, not to mention various Christian denominations, um, who already have thousands of such, such schools. So, even-handedness would, would mean doing the kind of thing that the government started to do in 1997, and carrying on carrying on with that with that process, which the government is, uh, began to stall after, as it were, Muslims. Um, began to get such a bad name for whatever reasons to do with uh, their public profile, obviously public profile related to issues to do with international terrorism and so on. Somehow an argument, or argument is too strong a word, a impression, or perhaps more accurately a prejudice, grew amongst quite a lot of people that somehow Muslim schools might end up creating future terrorists there was no evidence for this whatsoever. In fact, insofar as there was any evidence, it was exactly the other way around. You know, what evidence we had of people who'd been schooled in Britain and were involved in any kind of uh, terrorist campaign, alleged uh, plot, and so on, um, none of them had been to anything like a, a Muslim school. Um, they'd been to comprehensive schools, actually. So perhaps we ought to be careful about them. Uh, So that's clearly one policy area where I feel we we began to move in the right direction in in the late 1990s, but uh, we haven't closed off that direction. But on the other hand, there's quite a lot of hiccups and doubts about it, and a possibly growing majority of public opinion um, becoming very suspicious about uh, state-funded schools run by religious groups, in particular run by Muslims. Um, the House of Lords, where bishops sit by right, is, is another high-profile issue. Probably, has got very little in terms of kind of power, but nevertheless, obviously, a very high-profile issue. The upper chamber of our, of our legislature. Why should only Church of England um, bishops sit there by right, and other people sometimes are invited on their own um, on their own merit? as it were, like, say, the chief rabbi, and other faith representatives not invited at all. So that that would be another clear case where even-handedness should be be exercised. Moving to the third bullet point, and therefore, as it were, a thicker notion of religious equality, um, I've called this positive inclusion of religious groups, and I'm, again, very much borrowing, really, from the ways in which what we might call equal opportunities or uh, uh, inclusive equality thinking and practice has developed in relation to, let's say, you know, ethnic minority groups or uh, issues of gender. And I'm just saying, well, what if we applied this to religious groups as well? What does it look like? And perhaps a very quick and non-abstract way of uh, presenting it is by presenting it through an example. And my example is is the the BBC. The BBC, for a number of years, has said um, in various policy documents, including its um, annual reports, that it believes that as an organization, broadcasting organization, both in terms of personnel, but also its programs, um, it under... Represents three groups in the population, and it you know, feels at fault uh, for doing so, and has policies in place to reverse that. Uh, they haven't worked. I mean, I don't mean they haven't worked at all. What I mean is they're still in motion. It's not like they've reversed the situation that they identified, uh, and it wouldn't be. You know, it would obviously take some time to reverse it. But they say they're acting to reverse a situation where three particular. Groups in the population are underrepresented in terms of their personnel, in terms of program makers, and in terms of program output. And they are women, ethnic minorities, and young people. Now, I think they're right, you know, for having uh, picked out those three people, uh, groups of people. Um, I think that um, they're right to give some policy priority to underrepresentation as just defined um, and to feel that they're not serving the country they're not uh, fully carrying through their uh, public broadcasting remit uh, if they don't try and do something about that but what I'm here saying is well why why not some religious minorities Why don't the BBC feel that the under-representation of religious minorities is something worth commenting on and is worth something having a policy about? Now, they might say, well, of course, the most significant uh, religious minorities are likely also to be people who are members of ethnic minorities. Well, that might or might not be the case, and I'll, I'll address some issues in relation to that a little bit later. But why not not expressly say that actually we we think that as a society we're not treating everybody equally if we are indifferent to, if we're blind to the possible, probably actual uh, exclusion of religious groups in various places like the BBC like um, various workplaces, like uh, various uh, public institutions, agencies, um, trusts, boards, committees, and and so on. So that's what I would say is an implication for religious equality on the basis of what I originally said about uh, multicultural equality. Um, And to explore that further, I'd like to to draw out some, some of the implications in this way. I'd say, well, multiculturalism, as I've been talking about it, has certain implications for liberal citizenship. And I've described that as 3 plus 1. 4, if you like. I'll explain a bit later why I've put it in, in a slightly peculiar way, 3 plus 1. I think the first two on the uh, slide are pretty obvious and don't really need much comment. It's obvious that multiculturalism, certainly the way I've been talking about it, is a collective project and includes collectivities in one form or another. Secondly, of course, it's not color, gender, sexual orientation, etc., blind. How can it be when it's all about identifying various uh, inequalities uh, by reference to those aspects of people to those group identities and then doing something about it so obviously it's not colour blind etc in that sense but I think the third item I have on the slide that multiculturalism in some senses beyond descriptive identities I think is not so obvious and I'd like to take a couple of minutes to explain what I mean Uh, many people say well the kinds of difference." Equality issues that one's interested in are ones where people don't choose their difference. It's just given to them. Um, The most radical way, of course, it can be given to people is by by birth, you know, through their their genes, as it were, just just through who their parents are or or through their own uh, personal genetic composition. Um, And so that's just a pure genetic fate that one's born male and not female or white and not black or Chinese and and so on. And people say, well, the kinds of equalities that multiculturalism is talking about are those kinds of equalities, are are those kinds of differences, I should say, those kinds of identities. Well, I want to say that's not true. That multiculturalism, in the way that I've been talking about it uh, so far, is not simply concerned with these ascribed, whether they're biologically ascribed or perhaps socially ascribed through stereotypes and, or if you like, through both because genetics by itself won't give someone an identity. Obviously, there has to be a social social context. Um, And some of these social contexts are contexts shaped by racism or a legacy of racism, stereotypes and uh, sexism and so on. So They can either be, as it were, ascribed by, well, through a combination of biology and what I've just said. Well, I want to say that multiculturalism goes beyond both those aspects of uh, ascription or imposition. I mean, most people would recognize that an appropriate uh, argument within multiculturalism in relation to, let's say, the school curriculum um, could be that the uh, curriculum that we have in our schools at the moment does not sufficiently recognize um, black history that doesn't include it in its uh, classes and its uh, courses, um, that doesn't uh, go not just enough into enough detail, but doesn't bring out the contribution of black history to, you know, world history in general and specifically to how it connects to the history of this country over centuries but also over the last few decades and so on and so this would be a black history that would be about um, excavating and in a sense um, making prominent certain kinds of African roots and African connections between what people in this country did to uh, people from Africa and, you know, the slave trade and colonialism, empire, and more recent history, and so on. Okay, well, if you accept that that that's a, a multiculturalist argument, um, one can see that there could be some people of African descent who may not share the view that actually this is an important part of a British identity for them that they want taught in schools, that they want taught to their uh, children. They may say, well, yes, that is, that is my history and so on, but that's not that important to me. Many other things are more important to me. Um, things to do with uh, contemporary uh, British multi-ethnic mix and the kind of society we're trying to be and certainly eradicating racism. But we don't need to spend a lot of time on a uh, black history uh, curriculum in order, to, in order to do that. So there is a sense in which somebody who we might say, well, you know, you're black, this is your history, may turn around and say, well, so many things are part of my history. Why, why tell me about this one? There's a sense in which uh, the person who says, yes, this is my history, I want it taught in schools, this is very important, and I want it taught to my children, is in some sense going beyond an ascribed identity. They're, as it were, identifying with this history. There is a space there for identification which could be a, a yay or a nay. That's what I mean when I say going beyond ascribed identities. Another way of bringing out this point is that supposing we were talking about um, a group in the population that was socioeconomically disadvantaged, you know, a group like, say, Bangladeshis. Um, and, well, let's say it was, it was Muslims. Now, someone might say, well, there's no evidence to say that the reason that that group is socioeconomically disadvantaged is because they're Muslims, though it may be the case that uh, Muslims... Aggregately, do have a, a disadvantage um, and suffer from all kinds of uh, marginalization or oppression or uh, prejudice and discrimination and so on that all of us would, would recognize and for which we could find some evidence and so on. Um, but most of that kind of exclusion is to do with, let's say, racial discrimination or discrimination against people who broadly look South Asian, possibly Middle Eastern and North African, but it's it's their look rather than their their religion that is the ground for discrimination, that's the ground for suspicion uh, by other people about them. Well, let's suppose that was the case. I don't think the world is as simple as that, but let's suppose that was the case. Someone could then say, well, that's who we we should be targeting – just like the BBC policy. We should be targeting people who are excluded because of racial discrimination or ethnic discrimination and disadvantage, not because of their religion. But what if that group, you know, like the Bangladeshis, Pakistanis and so on, what if that group or significantly uh, significant members, by which I mean in numbers, significant members of that group, said, well, actually... You're quite right, we do suffer from these forms of marginality and disadvantage and we do want uh, and need policy uh, emphasis, policy uh, targeting here. But we we think of ourselves as Muslims. That's what's important to us. Not necessarily because there's evidence that being Muslim is part of the dynamic of the process of exclusion, though there may be, but let's just say for the sake of argument we're not pressing that one but the group itself says we are Muslim. And it may be that I'm uh, conjecturing a situation which is too simple. You know, all Bangladeshis think they're Muslims and so on. Let's say they don't all think they are, just significant numbers do. My suggestion, the point I'm getting to, is that if we insisted in terms of our policies that actually no, we're going to to target policies to help you by focusing on ethnic discrimination, national origin discrimination and disadvantage and so on, there is a a real sense in which we would be not respecting the group in question. It would be a little bit like that first concept of equality which said, you know, your public identity is not to be determined by yourselves but to be determined by Somebody else, by processes identified by other people, the government, experts, social scientists, whoever whoever they might be. So there'd be a real sense in which to say, yes, yes, we want to help you, but don't go on about your religious identity. Let's just focus on the grounds of exclusion, and they're all to do with things like poor education, concentration in areas of deprivation, etc., etc there's a real sense in which we would be, to use Charles Taylor's terms, misrecognizing the group. We wouldn't be allowing them to have the identity that they think they do, but we would be imposing an external identity for whatever good reason. You know, the imposition of external identities doesn't all have to be for bad reasons. Sometimes they can be for uh, benevolent reasons, for you know, even putatively egalitarian reasons. Well my suggestion is that we would be misrecognising and therefore doing a, a real harm to people wh- whose identities we brushed aside for for some policy purpose, for some equality policy purpose. And if I'm right about that, that's what I mean when I say that the identities we're concerned with when we're talking about multicultural equality go beyond descriptive identities because we're talking about an identity in which the group itself has a stake and should that stake has to be part of the public identity, certainly part of, as it were, the process of public identity formation and change and modification and so on. Turning then to the plus one, you know, the fourth fourth point, this is really where I now get squarely onto, onto the second term of the lecture, secularism. And my suggestion is, not in itself a very original suggestion, that Muslim identity assertiveness has created this fourth challenge to a liberal citizenship, a challenge to secularism, which I define here very, very, very broadly to try and capture all possible secularisms, and within that, obviously, people will disagree and differ themselves from one position or another. But broadly, the view that organized religion is a private or community matter, not to do with state policy or state provision or citizenship. And I suppose I should begin by n- noting of this, this view, this view of secularism, this view of religion and um, state or politics that um, it's clearly stipulative that is to say it's not a view of religion most people in particular religious people have about religion or their own religion in the world I don't just mean in Britain in the world um, past and present so that's not to say that it's not a good view it's not to be dismissed just because of the point that I've made that most people who think of themselves as religious actually wouldn't fit this conception of religion this normative conception of religion but nevertheless we have to recognize that as a basic point that this is a stipulative view not just about the public area but it's a stipulative view about religion which may fit certain histories, certain religions and traditions, but may come into conflict with other religions and traditions. And of course, that will be highly relevant for a multi-faith, multicultural society and how to, how to deal with it. But that's not my main point about that. My, the point that I really want to emphasize is one which I I hope in some ways is is quite apparent. And that is that what I've just said to you about secularism shows that it's a concept that moves in the opposite direction to multiculturalism. Multiculturalism or identity politics or difference politics is about breaking down the public-private sector... Oh, the public-private distinction, where that distinction works to empower a dominant group and disempower by, in a sense, you know, disciplining and requiring assimilation and so on, a marginal or subordinate group. So it works to, um, to challenge certain public-private ideas and challenge certain forms of privatization, secularism works exactly the other way. It moves in the opposite direction. It selects a identity, religious identity, of, of all sorts, possibly, or only of some sort, because as I say, secularism, there can be lots of different kinds of secularisms. And it says, and that is what needs to be kept private. So, That's what I mean when I say it moves in the opposite direction to multiculturalism. The first concept of equality was inadequate precisely because it imposed, if you like, it stipulated a distinction, a public-private distinction, which new citizens or culturally different citizens or citizens marginalized in various ways were not being allowed to challenge or even to debate. And that's why we needed a fuller concept of multicultural equality. Well, secularism says, by definition says, there's at least one group identity which should be kept private. Whether this is assimilation or full equality or or whatever is not necessarily discussed at this stage. But the idea that one important group identity has to be kept private. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that um, religious identity should be, in some sense, forced to be made public, that individuals should somehow have to force themselves uh, or be required by people to declare a religious identity. I'm not at all suggesting that, and I don't see that as the opposite of privatization. I think a very good way of uh, seeing what I want to say is actually a, uh, if, if I use a parallel illustration of gay people because I think that will bring it out very very quickly uh, and that is where of course with uh, sexual orientation we say it's up to people if um, you know they want to keep their sexual orientation private but a conception of sexual equality or equality between heterosexuals and homosexuals and lesbians is that no one is obliged to keep their sexual identity private. They can do, of course. No one, sh- no one should, uh, as it were, out them against their will or, you know, in some sense to harm them, but it's not necessary. I mean, in, in a more classical liberal conception of toleration, it was necessary. It was, you know, I mean, the, the, the older conception of, of, of the law was that whatever adults did in private was their business, and that was the beginning and the end of the debate. But the identity politics that I'm talking about, the multiculturalism I'm talking about, goes well beyond that, because that's really just like the first concept of equality, the concept of do what you like in private, um, but just make sure you conform in public, obviously we've gone well beyond that and and all my discussion is about religious groups in the context of a normative commitment to equality that goes beyond that classical liberal toleration and I think that what we have in particular in Western Europe is really to not put too fine a word on it a kind of moral panic among some radical secularists Certainly, I would say that the centre left has become divided in these last few years between, on the one hand, those people who just say, well, you know, if there are disadvantaged or marginalised or oppressed religious groups like, you know, Muslims, perhaps Hindus, Sikhs and uh, others and so on, then we must, we must find ways of overcoming those forms of exclusion and alienation and potential uh, stereotyping and second-class status and so on, Uh, with religious groups just as we do with any other groups. So I would say that's one center-left position that is recognizable in public debates. And then there's the other center-left view, because, as I say, the left is uh, divided, which is that, no, religion genuinely is different Religion genuinely is exceptional. It's not like ethnicity or race or gender and so on. Those may be publicized, but religion should be private and should be privatized. And if necessary, through, you know, ultimately various kinds of um, legal positions and, as it were, disestablishment and changing up. Uh, policy in relation to religious schools and so on. I mean, you know, it can can require active policy and legislative changes, but certainly through not extending various kinds of um, representations and opportunities for resources to religious groups that we might have come to extend, not in a great way, but have come to extend in various ways to uh, ethnic groups or ethnocultural groups and so on. And I think actually, and this is why I use the term three plus one rather than just simply four, is that I think that this challenge of secularism or, or, you know, of religious identity against secularism is, is not, philosophically speaking, is not different in kind. So I obviously don't agree with the view that I've just mentioned which says religious identity in some ways is uniquely different. And people might, you know, people will have different arguments and so on, but I deal with just one that is quite uh, commonly put forward, commonly put forward where these issues are discussed like um, op-ed pages, especially I'd say somewhere like The Guardian, but also various various websites and blogs and, uh, and, and and articles by public intellectuals and so on. And this is that they say, well, you know, being a Muslim or, for that matter, Sikh or Hindu or whatever, this is a chosen identity. People choose their beliefs, whereas one doesn't choose to be male or female, black or white, etc., etc., something that we've, I've already discussed in some way. And relying on what I said earlier, I now want to reinforce that by saying that, yes, there are certain ways in which one chooses to believe certain things, to interpret One's uh, faith in certain kinds of ways, or to say I no longer believe that. You know, I'm not a member of that faith. I don't know what I believe, maybe, or I do know what I believe, and it's not this. Um, but that's not the whole story. Uh, if we're interested in the issues that I'm talking about, the issues to do with uh, inequalities and various forms of socio-cultural exclusion and second-class status, not only is that not the full story, it's not even an important part of the story. The important part of the story is that being a Muslim is not chosen in ways that can be contrasted with other forms of difference that need to be politically accommodated. And that was the point I was trying to get at when I was making the point about Black History Month being going beyond ascriptive identity. And uh, uh, various kinds of policies to do with disadvantage in the labor market for instance uh, not just confining oneself to uh, talking about groups, to negotiating with groups, to meeting with groups and so on under an already uh, stipulated identity label when, other, when the group that you want to talk to say ah but we think of ourselves in a, in a, in a different way so I, I think that there are certainly aspects of being being a Muslim that are clearly not just about belief or practice, that, um, if you like, are more like what it is like to be a Catholic in Northern Ireland. For lots of Catholics, of course, being a Catholic is about belief or practice, but there are other Catholics for whom the important thing is um, the membership of a particular community or tradition or heritage and defending that community when it's under attack in certain certain kinds of ways. For um, the Equality Commission in Northern Ireland, being a Catholic is all about which school you went to. If you went to a Catholic school, then you are a Catholic. As an adult, you're a Catholic for equality purposes, for ethnic monitoring purposes and so on. Um, So I think that being a Muslim is a lot more like that and therefore religious identity is much more like sexuality, race, race and gender. And therefore we do, in some prima facie sense, we do have a clash between multiculturalism and secularism. But, that's, if you like, that's the bad news. But there is, I think, some good news, which is luckily we don't have to choose between, between the two because that's not the real world situation it's, it's, it's not the situation at all we don't have to be for or against secularism if we want to be for multiculturalism for two reasons, firstly secularism has different meanings in practice um, so it's not you know, like there's a single meaning and we have to be for it and secondly the practice of secularism various forms of you know secularist practice, uh, institutional arrangements are hospitable to the claims of organized religion they're not just exclusionary they're uh, hospitable and accommodative though this is done differently in different countries and if we were to ignore that then we may end up putting together what we might think is best practice or someone else might think is worst practice from different countries, put them all together and say, here we are, here we have the full-blooded secularism and this is now the standard that we should apply to any one country. And I think that would be uh, a dreadful mistake. So very quickly, because I haven't got much time left, um, just to illustrate the point that secularism means very different things in different countries. Here, here, Here are three countries. Um, Well, you know, we all know about England or is it Britain? Um, It's got an establishment, but really, what a, you know, it's a weak establishment. Nobody thinks it's very powerful. And we also know that religion is quite weak in civil society. I mean, by uh, by weak, I don't mean anything pejorative. I've actually been criticized by someone for being very insulting about um, Britain and Christians by saying, that there's a weak establishment. I mean this just as a socio-political fact, and if people think it's not true, they think the Archbishop of Canterbury is a very powerful figure, well, obviously, we can discuss that in questions and answers, but I certainly don't mean anything bad about anything to do with Britain. Far from it. Um, But then look at the United States. Obviously, they have a constitutional clause preventing any kind of establishment, so they don't have one, but we all know how strong religion is in American civil society, and not just that, how politically mobilized it's become in the last couple of decades, very powerfully mobilized. So it's not obvious which is the secular society. They have a more secular constitution than us, that's true, but they have a, we have a lot more secular politics than they do. And one little anecdote illustrates that so nicely. You remember a few years ago... Um, Tony Blair and George Bush had a meeting, uh, some kind of summit meeting in relation to the the Iraq war. And at the end of that meeting, it was released to the, um, the press, the lobby at Washington, D.C., that the two leaders had prayed together before departure, or at some point had prayed together to help them with their summit. And um, whilst this was big news and so on, Tony Blair was on a plane across the Atlantic coming here, and loads of press got very excited and, you know, went to Heathrow or wherever to to ask him about, did you pray with um, George Bush? And in America, no one was at all puzzled by this or disturbed. It wasn't headline news of any kind whatsoever. Um, And anyway, before Tony Blair was allowed to answer this question... um, His uh, press spokesperson, um, Alistair Campbell, who was in charge at that time, came out to head the uh, press conference and said, OK, OK, I hear what you're saying. Let me just be clear. We don't do God. And as far as he was concerned, that was the end of that line of questioning. George Bush had no problem or people speaking on his behalf had no problems talking about prayer and, you know, which verses and how long did it last or anything like that. It was regarded as the most normal thing in the world. Of course, prayers take place in the White House all the time. Of course they do. Why should anyone be puzzled or surprised by this? But in British politics, we think it's very odd bringing one's religion, even the Prime Minister's religion, into, into uh, some kind of policy debate, foreign policy debate, and so on. That's what I mean when I say that secularism means very different things in different countries, and we shouldn't assume that, oh, we're the kind of bad old impure people who don't know how to divide politics and religion, but in America, look how sensible and wise they are. They've, they've done it. And France is a third country again. I haven't got time to go into France, but... Um, It's obviously very actively secular, but the important thing is to note that it offers top-down recognition, which we often forget. We often think of laicite as simply a policy of exclusion. That is not true. It's a policy of inclusion, but inclusion which is controlled by the state. So it's a policy of inclusion and control and not just exclusion. Moving towards a conclusion, rapidly, as I see that I need to from the clock, I've kind of tried to pull together what I've been saying, but also kind of point to where I think it's it's going in terms of political implications. Uh, And I've grouped them together under five headings. So the first point is, as you can see, I want to talk about uh, equality. Uh, Not sameness, but an equality which includes a respect for difference. That's where I began. Secondly, I think we need to reconceptualize secularism from the concept of neutrality where neutrality means like a contentless, like the equivalent of where we say colorblind, you know, religion blind. So by neutrality, I mean something like religion blind. We need to reconceptualize secularism from religion blind neutrality and the strict public-private divide to the kinds of Institutional arrangements that we actually call uh, essential parts of our secular polities in different countries and that I describe here as moderate and evolutionary, moderate and evolutionary because they are not always exclusive. They're usually forms of accommodation, like like in the case with schools, like the case with with the House of Lords. And they change over time. That's what I mean by evolutionary. There's no one fixed model that we say that is the secularist model um, based on on institutional adjustments. And the point that I'm making, if you like, one of the distinctive points I'm trying to make, is that what looks to us like an old-fashioned um, series of inheritances, like you know, establishment and so on, actually are not so useless and archaic. We can use them to extend, to include new groups, you know, newly organised religious groups, settled groups in in this country. So we can make some of these arrangements, which we might call forms of um, state religion, state, uh, politics, religion, relationships, modus, modus operandi, we can, in different countries, in different ways, we can make them work for multiculturalism. This is the last slide. So, my third point then, which in many ways follows from the second, is that let's not get into a big argument about defining secularism and then using that to, as it were, demand various forms of exclusion from religious people. You know, this far you're allowed to do things, after this you're not allowed to do things because that's too religious or something. I say we can be far more, as historically, um, you know, our politicians and our institution makers have been, we can be far more pragmatic and look at case-by-case approach um, because when we look at case-by-case approach, most things look solvable in one form or another. It's only when we run them all together and say we've got these two isms here, we've got secularism and we've got religious fundamentalism and so on, that it just then looks like completely impossible. It looks like a head-on conflict and we have to kind of choose one over the other. But that's not the world we live in. Fourthly, and this is something I haven't had a chance to uh, discuss and so I'll just mention very, very briefly, is that what I'm talking about multicultural equality and multicultural representation is not just about things like the House of Lords and what the government does and doesn't do and so on. It is, it is a form of representation which I think has to be shared by civil society. So all institutions need to be thinking in multiculturally inclusive ways if we're to have that multicultural equality that people like Irish Young and many, many others have um, spoken of, theorized about. And my very last point is that we should be willing to have a variable geometry in any one country and across countries. Across countries, we have them already. That came out very briefly in the three countries that I just mentioned. They all look different from each other in terms of their institutions, their political culture, etc., etc. And we may have various kinds of differences in Britain or France or the United States in relation between one religion and another. That's why I talked about even-handedness rather than just exactly the same applies across all religions because religions can be very different from each other. I mean, that's surely quite obvious. And one of the problems we've had in different countries, including this one, of finding appropriate ways of uh, accommodating Islam, meaning in particular Sunni Islam, is because it doesn't share the authoritative structures, the authoritative uh, centralization that um, some Christian churches share, above all, of course, the Catholic Church, but even, even you know, the Church of England. Um, nor does Hinduism and so on. So every time someone from the government in Whitehall or the Elysee Palace says, you know, yes, it's about time we recognize the Muslims, we'll do it now. S- you know, send me your leaders and we'll find a way of uh, including you in some kind of... Uh, plural religious interfaith arrangement, it proves impossible because Muslims just don't have those leaders to send, or Hindus, or for that matter, Buddhists, and so on. So my concluding, concluding thought before discussion is that secularism, as privatized religion by law, is not compatible with multiculturalism. Yet, that, mean, you know, that secularism it isn't what exists in the world. What exists can be and should be adapted and can be a vehicle for multicultural equality. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Tarek, for a, a very provocative uh, lecture. Uh, we now have some time for uh, questions. And there's a, mic, there's a couple of mics. And acoustics in the hall are not good, so if you could just wait. So uh, one there, uh, and, and then one there.
2: Uh. Um, first of all, thank you very much. Um, I, have a, I have three comments, questions. Um, first of all uh, uh, the state provides certain services like education, health security and so on um, and if we were to say that uh, we follow the multiculturalist view that you were promoting then does that mean that for example I would uh, I should have the option to go to let's say a Buddhist uh, hospital uh, with Buddhist medicine or uh, uh, you know um, a Sikh police uh, uh, Jewish police, Muslim police etc um, <clears throat> second um, does multiculturalism as you as you're promoting does it defeat the notion of finding common ground because um, I think a lot of the uh, tenets of the Enlightenment were to establish to find common ground and does this specific value uh, undermine that effort to find common ground? Uh, Second, uh, you say that, you know, identity, everybody should be allowed to uh, promote their identity. But um, is identity something that's stable? Uh, Because uh, do we say, okay, I'm a Muslim? Or do we say, okay, in this particular context, I'm a Muslim. In this particular context, my Bengaliness comes out. Or in this particular context, the fact that I'm a European, British comes out. So is identity as stable as you've presented it? Um, and, yeah, I'll just take these.
1: Uh, yes, thank you. Um, Buddhist hospitals and police forces and so on. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not committed to saying that's what has to happen. Um, nor am I committed to saying that must never happen. I mean, a lot will depend um, on, on the context um, on um, exactly ways in which people are used to doing things. So uh, in many ways I'm kind of taking certain status quos for granted and saying if there are good, good arguments for doing things that way um, why don't we use that uh, way of doing things to include new groups. So but of course someone might say well actually that way let's say pillarization in the Netherlands that only worked because we were only talking about two or maybe three pillars but if there were to be 12 or something that would be completely impossible and unworkable and so there you have an argument straight away for not pursuing it so I you know if someone has a reason for uh, showing why that's not workable or that doesn't fit in with uh, how we do things here um, I, I'd, I'd be attentive to those, to those discussions. Um, I think that I would want to just insist on the possibility that um, religious groups could uh, provide various kinds of services that could that should be funded out of out of the public purse you know I've talked about schools, so I'd be supportive of that. but if someone said well uh, here we are, we're a religious group or possibly a number of religious groups because it could be a, a consortia, and they come up to the government and say, We want to be a hospital provider here's here's our plan you know here's how we'll do it here's who we're serving, and so on um, given you know given that the government is open in certain respects to uh, various kind of semi-opt-out ways of delivering services and so on. All I'd say is the fact that it's a religious group shouldn't rule them out of the picture. Um, but there would be obviously some rules as to how public money is to be spent and that, that would have to be consistent with, with uh, how it's done in with other groups and, 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 and so on. So it wouldn't be some kind of carte blanche. Like here you are. Oh, you say you're a religious group. Here's the money. Go away and do your thing. Um, I just, I just want to argue against the argument that says, well, because they're a religious group, they just can't be trusted, or trusted maybe the wrong word. They're just not appropriate for delivering any public services. I don't think that's true. Um, Yes, I didn't say a lot about common ground. That's, that's true, except uh, right at the very beginning about how you bring people together by respecting their identity and respecting their difference as well as um, having equal, equal rights of various kinds. Um, and I, I mean... I think that often we would need specific um, policies, or if not policies, certainly various forms of public leadership to bring people together, to get people to to think about what they have in common, and not just their differences. So I'd agree with you about that in general, though we may or may not agree about specific proposals. You mentioned the Enlightenment, and that did kind of put me off a bit uh, in terms of agreeing with you, because... Well, I don't know whether this is specifically an Enlightenment idea, but um, you said the Enlightenment was an example of a search for common ground. Um, I mean, some political theorists have argued over the last couple of decades that uh, public discussions, you know, discussions among citizens, have to have a common language or there must be some common ground between them. And what's interesting is that those who've argued this have always found some exclusionary reason why religious people are said to be not part of that common ground or why they have to, in some sense, translate their ideas or their political agenda into someone else's language before it's said to be common and shared. Well, I I don't see any reason to... um, I don't see any reason because of the... A little bit of the literature that I've read, and I'm thinking here very much of Rawlsian and to some extent you know, Habermasian arguments, I haven't seen anything to make me share those views, but certainly uh, instinctively I don't share them. Um, I think that uh, all citizens have the right to speak to each other in ways that, that seem appropriate to them. And if other citizens don't understand, they should say they don't understand, but we all owe each other a certain amount of civic solidarity to make the effort to understand what our fellow citizens are saying. But this doesn't exclude religious people. The duty is upon them as on anyone else. They should make themselves intelligible to people who perhaps don't understand, say, the idea of providence or jihad or uh, charity or whatever it might be. So, but I, I really don't think that most people in countries like Britain and America can't understand religious people when they say things like um, we really have to look after the the poor and the starving in the third world because we're all created in the image of God and we're all brothers and sisters. I don't think one one should turn around and say oh you've lost us there you know what do you mean? Um, And your third point about is identity stable? Well it's not stable but I mean different identities are unstable as it were, at quite different rates. Um, look at how something like Catholic identity in Northern Ireland has, you know, came to be rigidified, not just Catholic, I mean Protestant as well, and, and was linked to other identities like loyalist and nationalist and so on. Um, and who knows, in 20 years' time, um, the, most of the 20th century might look very unreal as to where Northern Ireland might might get to in 20 years' time and so on. On the other hand, it might not. So uh, I agree that the kinds of identities I'm talking about are particularly uh, unstable. But what is interesting is that religious identities on the whole are slower to change than ethnic and racial identities, for instance. We certainly in Britain seen over two or three decades a uh, proliferation of ethnic and racial identities um, and I, I guess I, I feel well if that's the case that identities change in different ways and at different rates and so on then we, we shouldn't use the, the fastest changing as the kind of model for judging the others we should be sensitive to if we like more slow-changing identities as well. And it may be that those will be the ones that will end up with most efforts to accommodate in a more institutional ways. But it just so happens that, sociologically speaking, they're more likely to be religious.
0: Okay. Um, can I ask uh, audience and speaker yeah. to keep their contributions quite short? Because there's a lot of people who want to speak. So you uh, you
3: Hi, yeah. Um, I want to probe you more on, on your concept of stable identities. Um, I find it difficult to see religion and gender, ethnicity, um, I mean, or racial as, as seen as an e- on an equal footing. Um, what we're seeing since 2001 is a greater assertion of, of Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, um, various types of Muslims asserting their Muslim identity. But your your discourse of branding them as Muslims actually um, undermines the fluidity and the other multiple identities that they have, and the very different, the distinctness of these groups. And, for example, you know, Bangladeshis, uh, or for example, are not as are more economically impoverished than, say, um, other forms of um, African Asians who who are Muslim. So. What what I'm getting at is that religion is more of an idea. It's it's something which uh, it has been formidably historically institutionalized, but it's not something... It's something which is subject to change. And you're... Yeah, so my my question is, um, why, you know... um, Is it right to brand them as Muslim, firstly, at the detriment of... um, destroying other aspects of their identity and secondly the notion of public space monopolizing or using um, the notion of Muslim within the public space actually is is contentious with my notion of say religion which is a great personalization of religion which which Ulrich Beck has talked about considerably and we're seeing in western culture so should religion as, as the way you put it be in the public space
0: Uh, Yeah, maybe we'll take a few. So, yellow at the back. Um, Hi. Um, Do you think that a weak notion of British citizenship is a major obstacle for the integration of immigrants? Uh, What would you define as the key characteristics of British citizenship, and uh, what uh, what do you think could be done to strengthen it? Okay, I'll just remind people, you don't all have to ask three questions. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'll take... um, uh, so at, at the back there, yes. So just yeah. <coughs> uh, My question is that uh, in the three plus one theory, you told that it's a collective project. But my understanding is the political liberal theory does not recognize the collective group and the uh, group rights and collective rights. Number one, and number two, your approach of uh, religious difference does it include the Personal lies dealing with the religion, because of the separate, diverse system, and all these things within the law, you excluded that thing. Yes,
1: yes, yeah, sure, okay. Um, yes, so it was a suggestion that religion is more of an idea than some of the other group group identities. Well, I, I suppose um, I am. Uh, strongly suggesting that as a matter of sociological fact that um, the way that we've come to develop a certain kind of multicultural uh, equality um, means that the identities that were as it were beliefless like race and ethnicity and if you like possibly even gender um, are given more uh, are given some content they're not just seen as just something biological or something physical. Uh, that's what I meant when I said that multicultural identities are, the one, uh, are beyond ascriptive identities, are identities beyond beyond that. And in a way, religion or certain religious identities, because yes, beliefs, beliefs are involved uh, amongst religious uh, people, but religions also um, a a community—it's you know ver- various people networked in, in uh, ways in which it isn't just to do with oh what do you believe, just that this is how they how they how they are—and I tried to kind of illustrate that by the example of Catholics uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, so that's how I'd answer you. I'd say that that's the bits of my lecture that would you know I, I would uh, turn to to answer you, and then you concluded by saying that um, you think religion is about private belief and so on and so does Ulrich Beck well yes so what you think that but presumably you're not asking everybody else to think that if they don't want to, other religious people may not agree with you so my whole project only arises because there's enough religious people who don't agree with you If if all religious people thought religion was what you think it is then a lot of the politics, the political issues I'm raising wouldn't arise. Um, British citizenship. Yes, this is is actually quite a complex issue. I do think there is a sense in which um, having a weak notion of uh, British citizenship, and at one point we didn't formally even have a notion of British citizenship, uh, has made issues of integration more difficult Though I also recognize it's also made them less difficult because uh, it's easier to uh, include people where you don't have a a strong, you know, um, template. This is what being uh, British is. Will you sign up to this and do you sign up to this and, you know, the cricket test, for instance. Um, And so where people are relatively relaxed about what it means to be British... Yes, it's easier. It's easier to develop a more uh, multiculturalist society. I think that's that's a fact. But there is a negative side to it as well, which perhaps we are also uh, experiencing, have come to experience. And, And that is, we've kind of almost universally, you know, by we I mean people in British society, but others I think parallel us, um, are talking about the importance of integration and that certain integration that should have taken place has not taken place and we have to work harder to to achieve it. But when people ask then, well, integration into what? It's very difficult for there to be a a coherent answer. Um, And one of the reasons is it's difficult I mean I think it'd be difficult in any case but one of the reasons it's made particularly difficult is because we've had decades, in fact the very same decades in which ideas about multicultural equality have grown the very same decades in which people have said something like oh there's no such thing as British Britishness you know, um, because we can't define it um, it can't exist and somehow, I mean of course that is true, we can't define it, but people have thought that that's somehow a distinctive feature of British national identity as opposed to national identities in general. I mean, French people aren't able to define what French national identity is is either. But on the other hand, they take a, a different uh, attitude to uh, being French and so on. They, they take a view that people should want to be French, that this is a good thing, and Of course, if you believe that yourself, you're more likely to to generate um, a positive attitude amongst other people. Whereas I think in Britain, people of course have believed that being British is a good thing and so on, but at the same time they believe that it's not right to say so. And so it's very difficult, you have to kind of bite your lip about that, or or more than bite your lips, kind of run down the idea of being British, emphasize the, the faults and the uh, problems, because you want to show how open-minded you are, and and then someone turns around and says, "But then why are you asking me to integrate? If, if it's such an awful thing, let me just get on with let me just get on with my own thing. And if my own thing is a an international Muslim project, well, I believe that's go- good. You think being British isn't particularly good, so why why bother me? Why tell me to integrate when you think it's such a bad thing to be part of this society? So yes, I think." there are both problems and difficulties uh, given the special uh, character of how British people have thought about national identity. Oh, oh sorry, yes. Um, Well, I'm afraid I forgot to note what your question was, but I I remember that you said that um, certain group identities are not recognized By liberal theory. So, yes, I I agree that's the case. Um, But then you said that my approach would, um, well, presumably wouldn't work for some reason.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, personal lives. Um, I'm not sure what you mean about personal life, but. If say schools and hospitals. No,
0: apart from that, uh, like the diverse, like the marriage, like the oh, other, other uh, their personal other things. Yeah,
1: yes, I, I mean, I think that, I mean, all these issues uh, are issues where um, law and public resources, um, where they bear on it, then any kind of multiculturalizing would affect them as well. So marriage you mentioned as an example. So there are some people that, um, of course, a lot of people marry in church and then sign a civic register as they're required by law to do so, and they can do this in church. Um, Other faiths have been campaigning to have the same right to, uh, just like Christians do, to have their marriage recognized or the opportunity to have it um, legally recognized in the place where the marriage takes place, rather than they have to then go somewhere else, and so on. So those would certainly be part of the cluster of issues that the even-handedness would relate to, yeah.
0: Okay, I think we have time for just one more round of questions. So you, and you,
4: and you. Uh, In your last slide, you talked about uh, emphasizing respect for difference, and a kind of pragmatic case-by-case case negotiation. I just wonder what links there might be with the theory of value pluralism, particular Isaiah Berlin's work on the kind of tragedy of conflict between competing values. Okay.
0: Um, yes, so middle
4: there. I do not wish to suggest that we disagree on everything, but let's assume that we do. Um you seem to say that um, uh, multiculturalism and secularism, to me, kind of definition is absence of a strong established religion because we run to a variety of views <coughs> and we never come to a compromise of any one of them. Uh, the question here is uh, the world today seems to think religion is relevant to their views and the world that the ideal religion suggests that ABCD is the opposite of that the that's happening on the street, which is the truth that happens in the world. The world is ruled not on religious principles. It's ruled by people who have different views and disagree completely about everything. About religion says Uh, one scholar, very famously known, sometimes not well heard, Dr. Rowan Williams, said, "Religion is confused, (laughs) and sometimes he says that um, it's contradicting, and everybody doesn't seem to trust what religion says because what happens in practice is the opposite."
0: Okay, and then third. uh
2: You've argued for a more generous um, meaning to be given to multiculturalism, but you've also equated it with citizenship. So, what is your thought? What are your thoughts about those people who wish to live here but perhaps don't wish to become citizens? And what, so, where does assimilation? Where is the boundary there? Yeah, yeah,
1: okay. so to finish today. Yes. Um, Well, I think I can give a very quick answer to the first question about theory of value pluralism. Um, Now, I might not be able to defend this, um, but it's certainly my intention to argue for a political position, which I'll call political multiculturalism, without committing myself to any ethical position like value pluralism. By ethical I mean in particular a meta, meta-ethical position which says that uh, values are like this, they're objective, they're subjective, they're plural or whatever. So um, I want to remain committed to doing that. Whether I can get away with it I, I, I don't know, but that's, that's what I'm committed to trying to do. Um, I'm not sure I fully understood the challenge or question you were posing to me. I heard the bit at the end about religion being confused and therefore possibly not being heard on the street. or um, Well, yeah, religion's confused. I mean, religions are confused, and so are other value positions and our political discourses and so on. They're confused to some extent. They're not so confused to other extent. And, and if everything was perfectly clear, we'd all be, I don't know what we'd be doing, watching telly or something, I guess. Um, but we're trying to understand things better because we think, yes, there are some confusions in our own mind as well as in what we read and hear other people say and so on. And that's obviously true about um, religious people and what other people say about religious people or about religions or about secularism and so on. So uh, you started off by saying you might disagree with everything that I'd said, but... uh, I didn't really get what exactly you're asking me to respond to in the very short time that's available to me. Oh, I see. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Well, I'd like to assume we agree. (laughs) Uh, Citizenship. Yes, that's a very good question because I'm obviously... um, I obviously have some very strong political commitments and uh, a strong commitment to... Uh, the value of citizenship and to sharing it and to extending it and to a particular conception of of a kind of fluid, open-ended citizenship is part of those political commitments. And yet, yes, there may be people who don't share that um, or who, for other reasons, might want to live in Britain or some other country but have the citizenship of uh, some other place, perhaps the place they're from. Um, Well... I think that um, this this partly does relate to the issue about Britishness and so on. If we think that we're doing something worthwhile by being citizens and by um, arguing amongst ourselves about the kind of polity that we are and trying to improve our society and um, what we expect from politicians and thrones, through these discourses, through our discussions and arguments about ourselves, i.e. if we're trying to be citizens uh, together and so on, if we think this is worthwhile, people who see us do this will either say, yes, this is something I want to be part of, or if we don't look very attractive, they'll say they're not. We can't compel people um, to be citizens. I mean, I guess we can compel certain legal statuses, though it would be illiberal to do so, and I certainly wouldn't want to do that and wouldn't see the point. But um, I think that, if you like, citizenship is a worthwhile political ideal. I certainly think multicultural equality is a worthwhile political ideal. And uh, I think the two not only can work together, but actually um, come out of the same body of ideas and political commitments. That most of what I was talking about is multicultural equality is really a certain conception of citizenship. So um, we can't compel people to be citizens and if some people want to be long-term residents here and don't want to be citizens themselves, I mean, if they have children, their children will become citizens by virtue of you know, being born here and living here and, and so on. And that's something we can live with, assuming that we're talking about relatively small numbers of people, you know, 2 or 3% of the population it really doesn't affect the quality of citizenship as a whole
0: Well, I'm afraid we have to bring the session to a close now. I know there are a number of people who wanted to ask questions, but I guess that's a sign of a provocative lecture that uh, there are more questions to be asked than uh, we have time for. So I want to thank the uh, lecturer again, particularly because I know he's struggling at the end of a bout of flu, um, for a very interesting session and the audience for your questions.